have good news for you today. God wants for you and me to have victory over sin. We're going to look at some verses today. I'm going to read them from 1 Peter, and we will see that Simon Peter is writing to us about this matter of victory over sin, victory over sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're just going to take these one by one, build upon them in a message that I've simply entitled today, How to Have Victory Over Sin. I'm starting with verse 1 of chapter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, Peter says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Verse 4, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, these are some very important verses, and they seem confusing on the surface, but Listen today, and I believe they'll make sense and uh, provide for us a great answer to the question of how to have victory over sin. Now, Jesus Christ died, my friend, on the cross for our sins. And when he came into this world, he did not come into this world to save us from hell. Rather, Jesus Christ came into this world to save us from sin. Now, we know this because we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, I'm not saying that if you are saved, you're going to hell. Of course not. That's not the case. You're not going to hell if you are saved. But not going to hell is the byproduct of being saved from sin. Thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. I must also carefully interject at this point to say this. The text does not say that he will not save his people in their sins, but rather from their sins. Has the power of sin been broken in your life? If not, my friend, then you have never been saved. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people looking for what I would call fire insurance today. That is, they don't want to go to hell, but my friend, that is not enough. I like the old gospel hymn that we sang. It was written way back in 1763 by a minister by the name of Augustus Toplady. Rock of Ages. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. 
Have you ever had the double cure? That is to say, saved from wrath, the penalty of sin, made me pure, that is the, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin. Well, the double cure saved from wrath and make me pure. Let me illustrate for just a quick moment. I heard a story one time about a man years ago who was languishing in a prison cell. One day the people of that prison came to the man in his cell and thrust a piece of paper through the bars and gave it to the man and said, it is your pardon. The queen has pardoned you. You are a free man. The man read the paper but did not seem to have any joy or exhilaration. He was not smiling and jumping up and down, and, and so they thought, well, maybe he does not understand exactly the, the full impact of what the queen has done. Don't you understand, sir? You are a free man. The queen has pardoned you. With this, the man unbuttoned his jacket and showed a cancer in his chest that was eating away his life. The man spoke up and said, what can the queen do about this? You see, what good is it, friend, to have a pardon if we are still being consumed by sin? You see, there needs to be the double cure, saved from wrath and make me pure. The Lord needs to do something within us about this sin that is consuming our lives and consuming the lives of so many people. And so here the Apostle Peter is talking to us about how to be victorious over the power of sin. Now, sin will do three things. Number one, sin will control you. Number two, sin will corrupt you. And number three, sin will condemn you. Peter is dealing with sin in this text from 1 Peter chapter 4, and he is showing us how the cross of Jesus Christ breaks the control of sin and how the cross of Jesus Christ removes the corruption of sin, and how the cross of Jesus Christ destroys the condemning power of sin in our hearts and in our lives. Now, with that introduction, let's get into our message and examine the text before us that we read a moment ago out of 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me give you point number one. Sin controls us. Look again at chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Now right away in this first verse, Peter touches on two tremendous doctrines. You have to understand these. Number one, there is the doctrine of substitution. And number two, there is the doctrine of identification. So let's spend just a moment here as we consider this first verse with these two doctrines as we get started. Again, number one, Christ died for us. The doctrine of substitution. That is, again, Christ died for us. The doctrine of identification is that we died with him. He died for us and we died with him. He died for us, for it says again in the first part of verse 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us. 
His death, Christ's death upon the cross, was a substitutionary death. Peter has already declared back in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That, that is, his death, Christ's death, was a payment in full for the penalty of my sin. And it was a substitutionary death. And he paid the sin debt in full. His death had my name on it. His death had your name on it. Peter tells us that when he died, he paid the price in full. Look at the second part of that first verse again, chapter 4, verse 1. For he hath suffered in the flesh, hath ceased from sin. Now, the one who has suffered in the flesh is the Lord Jesus Christ, but it says there in the second part of verse 1, he tells us that, well, he tells us in the first part of the verse, and now he writes that he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. The second part of that verse, does, does that mean that Jesus quit sinning? Of course not. Jesus never sinned. Then what does it mean? Well, this word hath ceased from sin means that he is finished with it. He is done with it. While on the cross, when Jesus bowed his head and said, it is finished, then it was. It was done. He does not have to deal with sin anymore. Oh, dear friend, Jesus Christ knew no sin before he came into this world, and he took our sins upon him, and he dealt with those sins. And now he says, it is finished. He is finished with them. It is done. The power of sin is broken. And Jesus says, it is finished. He has ceased from sin. That is, he does not have to deal with sin anymore. He does not have to deal with sin any longer. So firstly, he died for us. And now secondly, we died with him. So there is not just this doctrine of substitution, but again this doctrine of identification which looms at us from 1 Peter 4 verse 1. We died with him. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. That, that is, Peter is saying, what happened to Jesus should happen to you, should happen to me. Not only did he die for you, but we died with him. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. The word arm means to take artillery. He is talking about taking the artillery of heaven to overtake the artillery of hell. The word does not merely mean to arm yourselves, but to arm yourselves with heavy artillery that, that, that is over and against a weak and a small artillery. It, it, it's like the devil has this hand grenade and you and I have a tank. The fact is, he is great and he wants to give you what is greater so that you and I can handle and have victory over the enemy and the tough times in which we currently live. Remember that title, How to Have Victory Over Sin? Let's come at the phrase again. Arm yourselves, it says, arm yourself in the same mind. That is, as Christ was done with sin, 
so you and I also should be done with sin. He hath suffered in the flesh. He's, he's ceased from sin. Well, if he died and sin has no more uh, demand upon him because uh, God's way of dealing with sin is death and once someone dies, the penalty is paid, then if you have died with the Lord Jesus Christ, then you also should be done with sin. That, that is, we died with the Lord Jesus. Now, again, we call this the doctrine of identification. That is, we were identified with the Lord Jesus in his death. Someone may ask, well, how, how, could, how could someone, referring to Jesus, how could someone dying 2,000 plus years ago change my life today? That's a good question. It's a fair question. That question is a part of the answer comes from the very familiar verse that we often read in Galatians 2.20. Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. That is, when, when he died, I died. He died for me, and therefore I died in him. His death for me was a vicarious death. Again, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself for you, that he might give himself to you. And now the life you live is his life in you. It is a supernatural life. The risen Christ inhabits you because, you see, not only did you die with him, since he died for you, but you rose with him since he rose for you. You say, this is kind of complicated. Well, it's going to get more complicated, but stay with me just for a moment here. This is important. Please, please turn back with me. Keep your finger there in 1 Peter chapter 4, but go back to Romans chapter 6. Out of Romans chapter 6, and it goes so important with this first verse here as we're building uh, some important things to really show us where this victory is. But as you go back to Romans 6, I'm going to give you three key words as we are talking about this matter of identification with Christ and his death. I, I believe that when you understand these three words and put them into practice in your life, then you will find out that you no longer need to be controlled by sin. Unfortunately, so many people are controlled by sin because they have never entered into the truth of their identification with Christ. Word number one, let me give you the word, then I'll read to you from Romans 6, verse 6. Word number one is the word know, K-N-O-W. Now notice here in Romans 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Who was the old man? Well, that was who you and I were before we were saved. It says we were crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. What is the result of that destruction? The result of that? That henceforth we should not serve sin. Verse 7, for he that is dead is freed from sin. I ask the question, are you free from sin? Well, that's what it says. You may say, oh, but my life here on this earth is a mess. It's a wreck. Well, then you need to know the truth. What truth? It is an intellectual fact that Christ died for you. 
And when Christ died for you, then you died in him and with him. Know it as a fact. So the first word is know, K-N-O-W. The second word is the word reckon out of Romans 6. We're digressing off this path, looking at 1 Peter 4, 1, but going back to Romans 6. The first word was the word know. The second word is the word reckon, Romans 6, 11 and 12. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Now, what does the word reckon mean here? Well, the word reckon is a bookkeeping term, just like a man reckons a balance on a ledger. You know what Paul is saying here? He is saying, bank on it. He is not trying to get you to feel a certain way about it. He is not trying to get you to be emotional about it. Rather, he is trying to get you to be factual about it. This is not something you do by closing your eyes and pretending. It's not something mystical. We're not talking about something that is real and factual, and once you know it, then you... Excuse me, we're talking about something that is true. It's factual. It's real and factual. But once you know it again, you have to reckon it. Feelings don't have anything to do with it. Now, the third word, not only must you know it, that was the first word, and reckon, but there is one more step. You can know and reckon on it and still not have that victory. Here is the third word. Write down the word yield. Word number three is yield from Romans 6. Let's look at verse 13. Romans 6, 13. Neither yield ye yourselves members. Now, what members is he talking about? He's talking about my eyes, my hands, my my ears, my mouth, my belly, my feet. I don't have to yield this body to the devil to sin. I don't have to do that. Now listen to what he does say. He says, verse 13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. And then verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you. You do not have to be a slave to sin because of the work of Christ on the cross for salvation. It's like Peter says back in 1 Peter 4, 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. When Jesus was finished with sin, so can I be. For the Bible says, let this mind be in you. That is precisely what Peter is saying. Now let's summarize where we are so far. Number one, you must know it. It's a fact. Number two, you must count on it, bank on it. It is applicable to your life, then number three, you must yield to it. Listen, God is not going to do it without you. You cannot do it without him. But when you simply give your life to the Lord Jesus and say, I I yield it to you, then there is a supernatural power. Uh, Then the power of sin is broken and he does it in you and through you, but you must yield and you must cooperate. We need to simply learn to yield to the Lord. 
Lord, here are my hands, my feet, my tongue, my voice, my eyes. Sin shall have no more dominion over me. I yield it to you, not to sin. In fact, you must personalize it, and then sin shall not have dominion over you. Say it, friend. Say it, say it. Lust, laziness, dishonesty, pride. It will not have dominion over me. I'm giving it to you, God. I'm laying it at your feet, Lord Jesus. What Peter is saying in the verse I just read, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. My friend, this is a wonderful, gracious, wonderful truth. This is heavy artillery. This is important because no Christian should want to be controlled by sin. According to this verse, we can be released from the tyranny of sin. We died with Jesus. Let this mind be in you. Now, neither Peter nor Paul is talking about sinless perfection. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. He's not saying we will never sin, but he is saying we do not have to sin. There are so many people today who are absolute slaves to sin. We don't have to be a slave to sin. That power of sin was broken when Jesus Christ died on the cross. Know it, reckon it, and yield to it. Let this mind be in you. You see, not only did Jesus die to give us release from the control of sin, but because of that, number two, the corruption of sin. Let's explore that in our message as we go a step further. Go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We've only looked at one verse so far, chapter 4, verse 1. And there we were talking about uh, how sin controls us. But now we come to chapter 4, verse 2, and we come to point number 2 in our message today, how sin corrupts us. And so we look at verse 2 of 1 Peter 4. He does this, he says, because, verse 2, that he that is the one who has been set free, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Underscore that phrase, the will of God. And then let's keep reading verse 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of Gentiles. Underscore then the phrase, will of the Gentiles. Keep reading. When we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to do the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Now what Peter is doing here, as we've read verses 2, 3, and 4, he is contrasting two different lifestyles. One lifestyle he calls the will of God, we underscored that, the other lifestyle he calls the will of the Gentiles, and we underscored that. Now, the word for Gentiles here does not just mean people who are not Jewish, but it's a biblical phrase for pagans. So you have a godly lifestyle and a pagan lifestyle, two lifestyles that he is contrasting. There is the thrill of the dedicated life, and then there is the tragedy of the dissipated life. 
That is the contrast that Peter is talking about. The thrill of the dedicated life, the the, the thrill of living for God, the, the will of God. And then he talks about the tragedy of the dissipated life, and he is going to mention this as the will of the Gentiles. I gotta, I gotta give credit to Peter. I like him. Not only does he preach against sin, but he calls it by its first name. You don't have to wonder what Peter is talking about. He's rather blunt. He goes right down the list, and as he preaches about it, then he tells us what is wrong with it. Number one, he tells us it is a wasted life. Look at verses two and three that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God, for the time past of our life. Do you get the thought? No longer. And then rest of his time, and then time past. Peter is saying that you have been wasting time. You have been wasting your life. I don't know who said it first, but they certainly said it well, and I have written it in the flyleaf of one of my Bibles. It is just one life. It will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Concerning the will of the Gentiles, as Peter uses that phrase, the best thing we could say about sin is that it is a waste of time, a royal waste of time. You know, preachers often say, get right with God, you might die. Maybe we should be saying, get right with God, you may live. What a joy to live for Jesus, not just to die and to go to heaven, but why waste any more time? Why waste your life today? It's wonderful to know Jesus. It's not simply a waste of time. Billy Sunday, the great evangelist of years gone by, was one time talking about deathbed repentance. Now, I believe in deathbed repentance. I've seen it. You can be saved at any time, even on your deathbed. He he said the deathbed repentance is like this, and I quote, burning the candle of life for the devil and then blowing the smoke in God's face. Wow. The reason I give you that simple quote is because we don't want to waste our life burning the candle for the life of the devil. Peter not only says regarding this life of dissipation, this pagan lifestyle, that it is, number one, he tells us that it is a wasted life, but number two, he tells us that it is a wrecked life. Look again at verse 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, that's this pagan lifestyle, when we walked in lasciviousness. Now he mentions these. Again, he's blunt. He mentions sins by name. He calls them by their first name. What does the word lasciviousness mean in our text? It means sin that is unashamed. This Greek word behind this refers to a sin that shocks, sin that disgusts. And yet the people who commit this sin are not ashamed of this sin. Have you ever noticed how much of this sin is thrown before us by Hollywood and by the world? Vance Havner once said, quote, Sin that struts down, uh, sin that struts down back alleys now struts down main streets. It's amazing to me, again, how blunt people are with their sin and how profound and how much in our, in our face we find it today in our culture. 
And now again, I, I'm talking about sin that wants to parade, sin that wants to rally. It's like the prophet Jeremiah said in the Old Testament, neither could they blush. Sin that again is so brazen. Now the Bible word for sin that flaunts itself is lasciviousness. Then he goes on in verse 3 and he talks about sin that is unsatisfied. The word lust is used there. Now, this does not just simply mean sexual lust, though it may include that. It just means strong and unsatisfied desire. What are people doing these things for? Well, because people are trying to be satisfied, because there's an emptiness, there's a, there's a void in their life, there's a hole there, if you please. There is a yearning and hunger for fulfillment, and they are looking at everything, ever searching and never finding. Not only are they unashamed and unsatisfied, but they are unsober. He goes on to mention excess of wine. There are people who believe that somehow happiness and fulfillment can come out of the mouth of a bottle or, in our day, some powder or some pill. And then he goes on to mention the fact that they are unruly. The Bible speaks of those whose glory is their shame. The word here is revelings. They are unruly, but not only are they unruly, they are unwholesome. The word here is banquetings. This refers to drinking uh, a drinking bout. Now we read about that they are ungodly, they're abominable idolaters. That is, the, the pagan lifestyle is a lifestyle of worshiping anything but God. The pagan lifestyle loves anything but God. The pagan lifestyle feel, feel, fears everything uh, but, uh, but God. So this is the pagan lifestyle. This is described bluntly by Peter in these words found here at the end of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. Remember, he's contrasting two lifestyles. We underscored the word, the will of God, and the, the, the will of the Gentiles, the will of the pagans. Now, some people may question and say that these things do not mention you, and you may think that your sin maybe is not as large or serious because I don't do these things. Oh, dear friend, there is no such thing as a little sin. Sin murdered Jesus, and sin will crush you. Now, what is he talking about here? What he's talking about here is this dissipation of sin, and he is saying that the lifestyle of the Gentiles is not only a wasted life, a wicked life, but he goes on to say it is a warped life. Number three, he tells us it is a warped life. Look again at verse 4, 1 Peter 4, 4, wherein they think it's strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. So not only do they do it, which we've already seen in our context, but they think we are odd ducks because we don't do it. They think we are strange because we abstain. We, we do not do these things. Notice the words, we run not with them. The idea here is like one animal running from one garbage pail to another garbage pail. Also note the word excess that was used in verse 4. The word excess has the idea of something that overflows and runs down into a, a ditch or into a crevice. 
verse 4 is saying they think it's strange that we do not run with them from gutter to gutter, from, from cesspool, cesspool to cesspool. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say, to the same excess of riot. And the word riot, R-I-O-T, is a very interesting word. Do you remember that the Bible says that the prodigal son wasted his life in riotous living? Well, that's certainly a good illustration of this word. You see, the word for salvation is the word sozo in Greek. And that is the word used here. Only he adds the Greek prefix, ah, ah, sozo. And so when you take that first Greek letter alpha and place it in front of salvation, ah, ah, sozo, it means not to save. Salvation means to save. Azozo means not to save. It's a wasted life. Here are people who do not care about saving their lives. It is a throwaway life, a disposable life, and they think it's strange that we do not run with them from gutter to gutter to throw our life away also. We don't live that kind of life as believers, as children of God. And then at the end of verse 3, on top of all of that, they even speak evil of us. Take a time out. Now, you can claim to be a Christian, and you can run with them, and they will love you for that. You can have the same lifestyle as them, and they're okay with that. But remember, if your lifestyle has not been changed, my friend, then you are not saved. You... You see, God's word plainly says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Do you know why they think we are strange and why they criticize? Well, the answer is because all they know is what we reject. They, they don't know what we receive. To them, this is the only satisfaction they are getting, and they say it is strange that we don't party and act like them and go with them and have the same values as them. To be honest with you, I don't envy those people. I pity those people. The lost man is running from gutter to gutter and trying to find fulfillment in all that this world has to offer. Paul said in the New Testament, we are fools for Christ's sake. So what is the lifestyle of the pagan? It's a wasted life. It's a wicked life. It's a warped life. These are timeless truths that are still true today. Thirdly, I want you to see that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, not only are we not controlled by sin and should not be corrupted by sin, but praise God, we will not be condemned by sin because after sin controls us and corrupts us, then it condemns us. So that's number three in our message today. We talked about how, number one, sin controls us. Number two, sin corrupts us. But then write down number three, sin condemns us. Peter says it this way in verses 5 and 6 of 1 Peter 4. He speaks of those who shall give an account to him. That is, he says, verse 5, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, let's answer the question of verses 5 and 6. Number one, it means it means that there is a day of reckoning coming. And it was plain. I think you saw that right away as we started verse 5. The Bible says there is coming a day when God will judge the quick, referring to the living and the dead. When Jesus comes, some will be living and some will be dead. But Jesus will judge them that do not know him. Friend, you cannot crawl up on a grave and pull the dirt over your face and hide from God. He is going to judge the living and the dead, so there is a day of judgment coming. That, that is what Peter said. But not only is there a day of reckoning coming, but there is also a day of recognition coming. Number two, this means, this means there is a day of recognition coming. Now watch carefully, verse 6. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. What? When was the gospel preached to dead people? Well, when they were alive. He doesn't say, is the gospel preached to those who are dead? Rather, he says, was the gospel preached to those who are dead? They are dead now but they were alive when they heard the gospel preached. He is not talking about a chance after death. That is not it at all. The verse goes on, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now what happened was this. Many of these people were judged by men in the flesh. They looked at these believers alive in Peter's time and said they are not worthy to live, and they judged them and put them to death, and thousands of Christians died because they were judged by men in the flesh. In other words, the world wrote them off, but they lived unto God in the Spirit. It was a time of recognition that those the world does not recognize were then recognized by God. What's more important, to be recognized by this world or to be recognized by God? Well, the answer is obviously uh, to be recognized by God. So there is coming another world and a day of reckoning, though, in the future. There is coming a time of recognition and a time of reward, yet future. And so he says at the end of verse 6 that they are going to live unto God. It will be worth it all when they see Jesus. So Peter says, don't be afraid. They may judge you and they may martyr you, but they will be judged by God's righteous judgment one day. Jesus said back in Matthew 10, 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It is a fact that sin has the power of condemnation. I, I mean, sinners without Christ are coming into judgment. As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Reading from Romans 14, verses 11 and 12. There is a judgment coming, but if you know the Lord, then, the, then because of the cross, the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You see, through the cross, there is no more control of sin. 
through the cross, there is no more corruption by sin. And through the cross, there is no more condemnation by sin. Because of Jesus Christ, we live through him who died for us. Jesus, bless his wonderful name, has taken the sting out of sin. He has taken the gloom out of the grave and he has taken the pain out of the problem. He has given us hope that is steadfast and sure. That, my friend, is some timeless truth for some tough times. You can have victory over sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the text from 1 Peter. Help us to clearly see that there are two ways. The way of the world, the pagans, the Gentiles, as we read, and then there is the way of God. We choose the way of God. Thank you for the promised victory that we can have over sin because the cross. Thank you for that substitutionary death that we can identify with. We pray today, Lord, that if there would be one listening to even the sound of my voice who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.